Andrew Talks to Chefs is an independent podcast. For current and past episodes, Andrew's blog, contact information, and more, please visit andrewtalkstochefs.com. To support us, please visit patreon.com slash andrewtalkstochefs. Enjoy the show. Andrew Talks to Chefs is brought to you in part by San Pellegrino Sparkling Natural Mineral Water. For more than 120 years, San Pellegrino has been inspiring people to savor life and tasteful moments around the table. As chefs and restaurants have evolved worldwide, San Pellegrino has always been there to complement the food they serve, the moments they create, and to support them in both good and challenging times. Learn more at sanpellegrino.com. I'm Massimo Bottura. This is Amanda Cohen. This is David Kinch. This is Mike Anthony. This is Huni Kim. This is Amanda Freitag. This is Richard Blaze. This is Paul Kahn. This is Curtis Stein. This is Stephen Harris. This is Missy Robbins. And you're listening to Andrew Talks to Chefs. On this Andrew Talks to Chef special conversation on the third anniversary of the death of Chef Floyd Cardoz, we are honored to share a conversation with Floyd's wife, Barca Cardoz, recorded recently at her home in New Jersey. That's coming right up on Andrew Talks to Chefs. It's gonna take a prolonged arrangement of the senses to make some sense of this. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Andrew Talks to Chefs. I am your host, Andrew Friedman. And before I say anything else, my apologies for going a few weeks without a show. I have been running nonstop, including some travel, and it became very difficult to edit and do everything else it takes on this end to deliver you all clean uh, sounding shows. But I hopefully am beginning to make it up to you today. We are dropping two shows today, Saturday March 25th, there's this one. And then the other show we are dropping is one of our traditional feature episodes with an interview with Chef Ron Yan of Parcel Wine Bar in New York City. So please look for that one in your feed as well. And we've booked loads of other interviews that will be coming your way in the coming weeks. So today's episode, I have to say, is pretty special. A few weeks ago, I received the most amazing invitation to come to the home of Barca Cardoz, wife of Floyd Cardoz, who, of course, we lost to COVID three years ago today on March 25th, 2020. The invitation was to interview Barca and also to join her for lunch, which she would prepare for me. Amazingly, we had never met before, which made the invitation all the more touching. And I think I said yes to it about as quickly as I've ever said yes to anything in my life. I was very excited about it. I was very touched by uh, the invitation and I couldn't wait to get out there and do this. I expect pretty much everybody listening to this show knows who Floyd Cardoz was, but for the few of you who don't, he was the chef and in some projects, chef owner of several restaurants over the years, but it was Tabla a Union Square Hospitality Group restaurant in New York City where he rose to fame with what was at the time a revelatory approach to Indian cuisine, marrying its flavors with French technique in a mainstream package that did a lot, it's really hard to overstate this, to popularize Indian food in this country, to educate people about it and the spices that are so integral to it, 
and to elevate the esteem in which it was held here in the United States. Floyd was also universally beloved. People throw that phrase around a lot. In his case, it happened to be true. And he trained and mentored a generation of chefs, many of whom have gone on to do amazing things themselves. The lunch Barca cooked for me was outstanding. She describes it early in the interview, so I won't get into it here. And the conversation we recorded after lunch was quite moving. I think you will also find it so. We, of course, discuss Floyd and his legacy, but also Barca's less well-known story, the story of how those two met, how she's been coping these last few years. And as she begins her fourth year without Floyd this weekend, present with us here in the material world, how she's beginning to forge her own public identity and to carry his work and legacy forward at the same time. I don't think I need to say anything else about it by way of introduction. So with that, here's my conversation with Barca Cardoz. Here you go. Thank you for lunch. Oh, you're welcome. I'm glad you enjoyed it. You know, it's been great to meet you. We've been in the same room before. We established that today. Yes. Um, can I just ask, is the New York food community pronouncing your name correctly all these years? Is it pronounced Barca? Barca. Barca. Yeah. Okay. Well, first of all, let's talk about what just happened. So we just had lunch. You used some of the masalas that you designed with Floyd. Can you just tell us what we just had. We'll start with the basics, the rice. We did white rice, basmati rice. I did a chicken curry for you, which is the goan chicken curry that I made with the goan masala. It's basically a nice yellow, mild, earthy, hearty chicken curry that's made with the goan masala, which has a lot of turmeric, black pepper, cumin, cinnamon, and then you finish it with coconut milk. It has the flavor profile of spices, but it's milder because of the coconut milk. And I feel that's a great introduction to people that are a little wary of the spice notes or the heat notes in Indian food. Then we did what I call the goan kima. And as Floyd's grandmother would always say, it was a side dish. So it's another meat that you had. You had a beef mince with goan masalas and some peas that was cooked. And we did uh, okra, which was made again with sour plum or kokum. That's the Indian word for it, with just onions and um, ginger and garlic in there. And I finished it for you with a kachumbar or a chopped Indian salad, which was uh, beets, onions, tomatoes, cucumbers, and then it's finished with some goa salt and some vinegar that is, again, a goan vinegar that's made from palm. Just so typical what Floyd grew up with. So I wanted you to experience a good meal in Floyd's home, our home, and that's what you had for lunch. Mm. Well, thank you for that. It was very special. I really appreciated it. When Daisy reached out to me about talking to you, you know, a lot of your life still is about Floyd. A lot of the email was about Floyd and his legacy. But I want to like let people and myself know a little bit more about you. Can you just tell us Where'd you grow up? What was your kind of family situation like as a kid? And how did food figure into your life as a young person? You know, you're one of the first few people that, that's actually asking me about me because everybody always assumes I'm Floyd's wife, which I am, and I'm proud of that. But I'm also my own person. I grew up in Bombay. 
I grew up in Mumbai. Hate to call it Mumbai. I still love to call it Bombay. Why do you hate to call it Mumbai? Because we grew up calling it Bombay. Bombay was what it was. It's Mumbai now. I respect that. But for us, our memories always go back to saying it was Bombay. So that's where I grew up. Went to school there. Grew up in a Hindu family. Went to Catholic school. Went to cooking school in 1981. Met Floyd over there. We happened to meet here in New York. You reconnected here. Absolutely, by chance. I grew up in a family that was mainly vegetarian, limited with our meats. We did, you know, simple stuff. We did goat meat, we did chicken, lots of fish. I was nicknamed um, the cat in the house because I loved my fish as a child. I would like trick my cook to take me to the market to buy fish. So I loved food even as a child. Flavors were different. The dishes that we cooked, every region in India eats different food. So I grew up doing that. Um, was the youngest of four siblings and just went along with everything and everybody and came here, came to the States, met Floyd. And we decided that much as we were both in that same profession. We knew we wanted to have a family. We knew we wanted balance in our homes. So I went around doing garment production, doing events. I worked at a high school in Jersey City, uh, St. Peter's Prep, with uh, helping them do fundraising and events and stuff like that. So that's my background of where I'm from and what I did. Can I just ask, when you went to cooking school, Yeah. Was it with the goal of, I'm just wondering, uh, you know, the generation that you're a part of, at least here in the United States, right, that was still a somewhat dicey profession, or it was seen to be by a lot of people, certainly by people's families. There was a lot of fear when people found out their kids wanted to do that. What was that like in India? And specifically, was were there any special considerations or approvals or disapprovals that came about? Uh, for a young woman pursuing that path? It was different at that point. I'll just talk from my own personal space. My dad always wanted me to be a doctor and I studied for that. And I think at some point I realized that is not what I was going to be able to do because you had an entrance exam and I failed it. Just distracted, didn't want to study as much or as hard. And my brother was older than me, had gone to cooking school in New Delhi. And I had gone to visit him a few times and I was fascinated. I always loved food and I was fascinated by what he was doing. And I thought that was like my ticket out of the city where I lived because we moved to Bhopal, which is in the central part of India when I was 13 and I was just ready to go back to Bombay. So I applied to the school. I didn't tell my dad I was applying to the school I got in. And I told him, I think in a couple of weeks, I need to go to Bombay. And he was like devastated. There was no way you are going there. You can't do that. But we did it. And um, I didn't know what to expect. And I didn't know what I was going to do. It was like, in my mind, the only thing I looked at was this was my way out of Bhopal. Once I went to school and I started cooking and, you know, doing all the other aspects of hotel management, I realized I loved it. I loved cooking. I still do. 
But at that point, I was very clear that I wanted to be front of the house. I didn't want to be in the kitchen. I didn't want to be standing there cooking for so many hours in the heat of the kitchen. I liked seeing people, meeting people. And so front of the house was where I was going to go. My dad wasn't happy. He really wasn't happy. My mom was like, okay, if she's happy, I'm all right with it. But I think eventually... He had no choice. He just had to accept what we did. Just from the couple of hours we just spent together, the front of house decision, not just because of the the heat of a kitchen, but that seems to track to me. You seem to like conversation. You seem to like being social. You know, we just spent a couple hours. There were no lulls. I mean, there were three of us here, but um, is that an accurate statement? Do you just, do you enjoy people generally? I do. I love talking. Lloyd's joke with me was always like, you do the talking, I'll do the listening. I absorb. I love to hear people. I love to see what they're about. I'm curious about people and where they come from. Because at the end of the day, when you sit down and you listen to people and you're paying attention, you realize that we're all the same. We may come from different upbringings or bases, but at the end of the day, we're all cut from the same cloth, speaking the same language. And to me, that is what I'm attracted to, to hear people Different age groups, different experiences, but it all boils down to just simplicity of life and love. And I enjoy that. You know, you said you and Floyd reconnected in in New York. What what brought you to the States in general and and what brought you to New York in particular? And how old were you when you came over here? I was 24 and I actually came to New Jersey to visit my sister that lived here. She'd been here for a few years and I just came to visit her saying, I'll take a break from India. I was dating a guy that my parents weren't happy with. My mom was like the wise woman that she was. She's like, well, why don't you step out of the situation? Go away for a break, go visit with your sister. You come back and then we'll figure out what you're doing. And so that brought me here. It wasn't so much as I wanted to come, but it was like, okay, she's buying me a free ticket and it's an opportunity to go away for a bit. And Put an ocean between yourself and... And my situation. (laughs) (laughs) And um, worked out that we did that and I stayed on. I... Just lived here and been here for over 32 years now. Had you ever been to the States before? No. That was my first trip. So I had no idea what I was getting into. And I came here to New Jersey because my sister lived here. So it wasn't like I chose a place. The place chose me. Mm -hmm. And that's where I've lived ever since. How did you guys reconnect here? Did you run into each other somewhere? It's such a strange space. Um, Floyd grew up in Bombay in an apartment building that one of my sister's friends in Montclair grew up in as well. Let's call it a small world. And she invited us over for dinner when I first arrived in New Jersey. And her conversation was all about, you know, where did you go to school? What did you do? And so I told her I went to cooking school. And she goes, well, I have a friend. And thoughts in my head were like, Oh, yeah, she's going to go like she knows somebody, everybody knows everybody kind of thing. And she actually said, there's this friend of mine that I grew up with and his name's Floyd. And I'm like, I know Floyd. Floyd's a very good friend of mine. And so she gave me his number and um, I called him. I remember him distinctly picking up the phone and I was like, hey, Floyd, it's your friend. And he goes, friend, what friend, who friend? And I said, well, I'm not telling you my name. You got to guess. And he always used to tell people the story and says, you know, it was my head was going crazy saying, if I take the wrong name, what's going to happen? Because she's, you know, like 
who's this person? Spoke to him for a bit, and then I told him who I was. And he was like, oh, my God, you got me there. But then we met, and, you know, we hung out for a bit. And I think it was about six months later that we started dating. And about a year, a year and a half later, we got married. Romantic. Yeah, it was. I think it was more that security of friendship. Mm Mm-hmm. And knowing somebody that you didn't have to prove yourself or try and impress. And I think when you come away at that age, at least it was then, you're not looking for relationships for the sake of a relationship. You're looking more to be safe Mm -hmm. with someone. Mm -hmm. And I think we just got blessed and lucky that we found one another. And it's odd to me that people wouldn't want to know about you, but it's, it's, I can also, in your case, a little bit kind of see where that might happen because you do very much still, you know, you're, you're very devoted to, to keeping his legacy uh, front of mind for people. His name is very prominent still. Uh, you know, there's a, you have a website and, yeah. and these products. And I can't read the face you're making right now. I don't know <laughs> if you're disagreeing with me or agreeing with me. No, I agree with you. And oh. there's a reason for it. But I also, um, which I want to hear, but the last part of my question was, you know, before we met, Daisy made a point of telling me you don't use the word widow. You still use the word wife. That was personally interesting to me because I can never bring myself to refer to the wives of friends of mine who have died as a widow. I, I, I never do it. I never do it. This is the first time I've had someone proactively tell me not to do it. Um, but what were you, you going to say? When Floyd and I first got married, there was this friendship that started out. As everybody goes about life, you you know, life gets gets in the way or you grew up with it and you have kids and you have stuff going on. But I very clearly remember Floyd always having conversations where if there was any kind of a conversation where something happened or whatever, I would say, I did this or I, you know, I'm thinking this or whatever. And he was just so clear about the fact that we were a team, that it was always us. He would never say it's, I did this. It was always like, are we doing this? So can we do this? And so I think when you've done that for over like 30 years and something like this happens and you, you realize that you don't know how to function as the I or the me, because all you've ever done is an us. And I think that's where that space comes from. Floyd and I always, always did everything together. Whether it was raising our kids, whether we were going out, he ran restaurants, but he came home and we'd have conversations for whatever he wanted to share. Um, When we did Bombay Bread Bar, I worked with him. So it was just something that we did all the time. And I look at where I'm sitting now without his physical presence, I take that as it's just his physical presence that's gone. He's still here with me because how am I supposed to do the us if he's not here? So that's where that comes from, that I'm always talking about him. And I know sometimes it's like, oh, it's it's almost three years and she's still talking about him. But I think I don't know, at least where I sit right now, I'm going to be talking about him for the rest of my life because his legacy wasn't just about what he did, it's about what we did. So I always say that he's still here, he's not driving the car, 
He's sitting in the back seat and being a backseat driver telling me what to do. I'm driving it. I'm 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 the physicality of you know, taking the car forward, but we're doing it together. Did you ever see, there's an old Rudyard Kipling poem, Away? Have you ever seen that poem? Yes, yes, The first death I ever experienced uh, was when I was 18, maybe? It was my grandfather. And um, somebody read that at the memorial. And I always took great comfort in that. It's not exactly the sentiment you're saying, but I'll link to this somewhere online in the show notes for anyone listening. But it's a similar sentiment, though. Yes. That the person's not gone, they're just away. They're just away. Yeah. And I always look at it as he shows up. He shows up in different ways. He shows up when I was doing the blending of the masalas in August. And I remember so distinctly, Andrew, standing there, and I'm mixing the blends, and Ethan, who's one of the co-founders of Burlap and Barrel, asking me, well, what do you think about the flavors? And I'm like... Why are you asking me? Like, ask Floyd. And I'm like, shit, Floyd's not here. So I got to figure this one out. And much as I know the flavors and I've, you know, cooked with it every week, uh, it was just that whole emotion of like, oh, my God, I got to drive this car now. I got to take hold of what we're doing. But I so clearly remember sitting there, mixing those blends and literally realizing that, it's going to be okay because he's there. He's he's holding my hand through it, and he's actually showing me what to add, what not to do. And it was just one of those moments where I say, I'm not going to fight this. I'm just going to take it forward. Do you get any pushback on that in your life? You know, you just said it's been three years, and people say to you, like, oh, my God, she still says. Like, do people tell you, like, you got to stop doing that? Or do they accept that you've arrived at this kind of ph- philosophy and what seems to me like – uh, uh, at, at, at least for now, a, a real piece about how you look at this? I don't know if they say it. They haven't said it out loud to me. Okay. But I personally try to be conscious of what I'm saying when I say it because it's second nature to me to do it. And I sometimes worry about the fact that people that sit across the table from me are listening to me and they're like, oh my God, she's still going on and on and on about it. But it's not that because that's my whole being. That's my life. That was my life um, three years ago. That's still my life. And that's the only way I know how to actually have motivation to get up in the morning, get out of bed and say, okay, like we're doing this. And so I do it every day. I'm curious to know, you know, even when Floyd was physically here, right? You know, I heard Andrew Zimmern once, uh, who's very friendly with uh, Jose Andres, right? Yes. And he said, uh, oh, you know, like my best friend is a saint, you know, the Spanish saint, you know? Uh, you know, it's hard. He goes, it's hard for me. He was being funny, right? But right. but also not so much, right? In the In the food community... In the U.S. in general, but in New York in particular, I mean, Floyd was this kind of sainted figure. He was universally loved. I've never heard a bad word about him. I didn't know him. It's funny. I was reminded of it when I was getting ready to see you and I was reading up and stuff that he and I had messaged each other on Instagram, I think in 20, earlier in 2020, like in in January, maybe. I think I just sent him and I might have asked, my 
message to him is gone, but his response was there. I think I probably wanted him to come on the show or something like that. Is that aspect ever, I don't even know if difficult's the right word, but is that ever hard for you? Or does that set a, like a bar for you to, to live up to? Does that create, do you feel like that creates expectations when people meet you as the other half of the partnership? When people were speaking about him in, in that, that year, in 2020, the outpouring was crazy. I mean, I don't know if it's still there, but when the Independent Restaurant Coalition was founded, on the website, it, it said for Floyd Cardoz. And he was also, when he left uh, the rest of us, he was the first big person in the industry that we lost, you know, at a very tenuous time for the world, right? And I think you put all that together and he is kind of a sainted figure in the industry. I think he got that because of just who he was before he passed away. And yes, I, that's what, it, by the way, and that's what I mean. Well, when he passed that week between the boys, my sons, Peter and Justin and me, whether it was through social media or it was emails or texts or phone calls, and I couldn't even tell you how many people reached out and from all parts of the world. It wasn't just New York chefs or people that had worked with him or had experiences with him. It was people that had eaten at the restaurants. And and you were like, you know, you were getting bombarded. It's the wrong word to use, but at that point it felt like that, that we had to take shelter because you were sitting in personal pain and there were so many people reaching out. And I feel the reason why people were reaching out was because they were in pain, that they had actually had an interaction with him or felt him or been in his space and experienced him. His food, yes, but him as a human being. And they were hurting and they didn't know where to go. So the closest that they could get to was us. I remember having this conversation with a lot of his close friends, with my sons, with family to say, I didn't even know Floyd knew so many people. And if he was alive here, he would say, oh my God, I didn't know there were so many people that even cared about me. Because he just went about his life and business as it was just something he did every day. I feel good in a bittersweet way that he's respected and he's talked about and he's remembered that way. But I think that was just the way he was. It wasn't because of what he did or how he was as a chef. That was just his hum humanity that always shined through. And I think that's what people remember and come and talk about more than his cooking. I mean, there, that is um, a lot of what we're left with, right? Yes. Uh, is, is the recipes, there was a the, the cookbook, um, you have this wonderful website, which I'll, I'll link to so people can go check it out. Speaking of the partnership, my understanding is the website's gone through a recent change. The color palette has changed on the site. This is weaving your, what would we say, sensibility into it a little bit from a design standpoint? It's more of, in for lack of a better word, for coming of age for me to say I'm actually growing up and um, we used to laugh about this, that I would always tell Floyd, all I do is follow you. All I do is, you know, pick up after you or help you with what you're doing. I take care of the family. What am I going to do when I grow up? And he would say, well, whatever you want to do. And I'm like, 
I think I know what I want to do. And I wanted to do the masalas and blends years ago, but it wasn't the right time or space because the kids were little and there was not e-commerce available. But I think now, this year especially, I feel like I have finally come into my own to be myself, um, not fearful of what people are expecting of me or what people will think, uh, what Floyd would think about it, but actually saying I'm going to own my own space. And my space is more feminine. It's more me. It's who I am. And I think that is what we're trying to get across to say that, yes, we we started out with Floyd and now I am taking it over in my own way and taking it forward. So not separating from him. I can't do that. I hope I never have to. But to take it forward with me being the the focal point of everything that we do. How is that reflected in the current design? The colors are what sits with me. I'm I'm big on light. I'm big on feminine colors. So we've gone brighter with the yellows because for me, I feel like 2023 is showing me light outside my tunnel. And that sunlight is something that I live by. It always, it always rejuvenates my soul. So we're taking in those brighter colors of the yellows and then the pinks and just a little bit more of feminine spaces for me compared to what it was before where we were trying to do more of Floyd and Bombay Bread Bar colors and just things that he liked and we're trying to transition into me. Is there anything that, of course I would ask this right after you talked about asserting yourself more, but is there anything about him that people don't get, you've done some interviews, you've built this website, is there anything that's like never quite made it into the consciousness about him, whether it was anything, the type of guilty pleasure in terms of food, uh, something he cooked at home. We talked about this. He hated bananas. (laughs) Um, But that chef community knew about that. It was always allergies, notes for him was always chef hates bananas. Um, But that's just, you know. That's it? No, I think, no, there's a lot about him. He was stubborn. Oh my God, Andrew, was he stubborn. Um, And anybody that worked with him would say, Chef was the kindest soul you had around you, but he was like so stubborn. Stuck in his ways. Oh, crazy. I would always say, please leave that chef ego and that big hat that you wear when you're in the kitchen outside in the garage when you park your car and you come in the house because I want my husband and I want the father of my children to walk in that door. Um, He was conscious of that. That was one thing about him that... I always miss is he was an amazing, amazing listener and patient, very patient with anything. There was his big thing was every time he was upset about something, he would write down things about it of what upset him or he would just spill it out on a piece of paper and then he'd go to bed. And when he woke up in the morning, if he still felt as strongly, then he did something about it or then he let it dissipate and say like, okay, I I said what I needed to to myself and I'm going to let it go. So that part of him, I don't know if a lot of people know, but yes, but he he was a person that was very conscious 
and clear about the fact that he didn't have the power to sign checks to give away, but he had the power to stand on this platform that he was blessed with being a chef, and he had to use it to make sure he left the world a little better than he came into. And I think he did a great job with that. You have a cookbook coming out. Yes. Tell, I don't, all I know is you have a cookbook coming out. What is the book? You're doing it with Burlap and Barrel. Is that accurate? Yes. So we're going to self-publish. The book's basically about um, using the masalas because every time somebody buys the masalas, there's a lot of fear and there's a lot of anxiety of how am I going to use it or am I going to be disrespectful to the masalas or Floyd and so we thought about it and I've been putting recipes out of how to use it but I feel like putting a book together with about 30 to 35 recipes giving people ideas of how I use them at home how I cook my simple everyday meals at home would help facilitate taking away that fear factor and also helping them learn new ways to cook because there's no wrong or right way to cook with a spice blend. It's just keeping an open heart and saying, okay, I'm going to go for it. So that's what I'm trying to do with these recipes. Just simple stuff so that it's not, you know, new or alien or scary for anyone because I want people to actually be fearless when they cook with these blends. And that's what I'm trying to get across. And that's coming out this fall? Yes. Okay. And uh, does it have a title? No, we haven't gone there yet. I'm just getting the recipes done and testing them and uh, we'll come up with something. There's something else I want to ask you. Uh, I want to ask you to tell it because A lot of people who listen to this show are culinary students, young cooks, aspiring chefs. Uh, Can you tell this story about this thing that Floyd said? You said it to me over lunch. I've heard it in at least one other interview you've done, the moment in cooking school and the comment about French cuisine. Mm. (laughs) Um, So we, when you go to cooking school in India, at least when I did, Um, We would do, it was a three-year culinary term that you did. So your first year was you'd learned the basics of Indian food. Um, The second year was, we would call it quantity cooking. So they basically taught you how to cook in bulk. So you cooked, most of it was different cuisines, but cooking for lunch for the entire college and then dinners would be for everyone that lived on campus in you know, the hostels, as we call them at that point. And then your third year was basically you were doing advanced cooking, which was just teaching you how to do French food. And that's what we learned. We learned all the techniques. We learned to cook different recipes. And Floyd and I would share because we had... Um, the group that we were in, we did all our classes together. So we would do what we call practicals or the actual cooking together. And he would always stand there and say, someone needs to take this French food and add flavor to it. 
And there'd be a group of us that would stand around and joke with him and say, what do you mean by that? And he goes, well, French food is good. Techniques are good, but it tastes good because there's so much butter or fat put into it. And basically, if you look at it, most of the flavoring comes just from salt and pepper. And we are like, but that's perfect cuisine. It's one of the mother cuisines. And that's what, you know, you do. And he goes, no, no, no. You take that and you add our spices and flavors to it. And you can make it so much better. And we would always say, yeah, right. Who's going to do that? And I would tease him. I was like, Floyd, who's going to do that? And he's like, I'll do it. And I'm like, okay, when you do it, please make sure I'm around. And I watch you do it. And he would like look at me and say, oh, okay. All right, whatever. And you fast forward to 10 years later, and he did that at Tabla. He took those French techniques and flavors and things that people were familiar with, and he added Indian spices and flavors to it. So I would always tell him, you're so blessed. You're so lucky. You're so blessed because you knew exactly what you wanted to do, and you got to do it. And some of us are still struggling to figure out what we want to be tomorrow or today, and he just knew he was so sure of what he wanted to do. So that was that story of, yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for relating it. I mean, for me, first of all, it, it sounds as many things do with food. You go back 20, 30 years and things that were big developments at the time sound very quaint now, right? It's True. like we take this all for granted. I was in New York when that restaurant opened and that was a big deal. That was a, that was a template changing restaurant. It changed a lot of things about Indian food in this country. You know, there was a ripple effect outward from that restaurant. For young people listening, and I'd love your comment on this, but to me, I always say, when I speak to culinary students, I always say, be attuned to what you like. Be attuned to what, to your own vision, right? And don't worry about whether it makes sense to anyone else or it seems quirky or it seems undoable. If, if there's something that you've caught on. These have been most of the big success stories of the last 15, 20 years. You know, when David Chang came out of the kitchens of like Daniel Baloud and opened a noodle bar, the initial response was, what is that? What is he doing? Is he crazy? And then it was the line around the block, right? This is where, this is where the stories that have grabbed the public's imagine the dining public's imagination, in some cases, even more of a uh, public's imagination, is people pursuing uh, their own vision the way the way a good writer does or or a, or a musician does? Um, it seems to me like Floyd was a great example of that. Someone, and maybe this is the you know the positive side of the stubbornness, right? He was not deterred by you all having that initial skepticism. No, I think also when he realized that he had this vision. He made sure he went for it. Like you said, you have to you have to own your own space. You have to own your being. And I think that comes with maturity. It comes with a lot of confidence. Um, and also sometimes it's being naive and, and young to say, I'm going to do it. I'm just going to go for it. But I think he took that to a whole different level when he was a chef and he knew what he had done had worked for him to tell all the young cooks that came into his kitchen. I, he always used to say, there's, when I interview someone, there's one question I ask them is, what is your favorite meal? 
What do you like to eat? And he would always encourage them to go back to their own roots. He said, if you know how to cook your own food and you're proud of your own food, you can do anything else. So I think what I take away from his interactions with us in cooking school was he was basically very proud of his own cuisine. And he realized that it wasn't accepted and it wasn't known everywhere else. And the only way he could get it across to get that acceptance was to then incorporate those flavors into stuff that people were aware of and comfortable eating. Into a familiar package, yep. Trojan horse. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> this has been a great afternoon. Thank you for having me to your home. Thanks for cooking for me. And again, for everyone listening, we'll have links to everything we talked about. You can go check it out for yourself. But Barca Cardoz, thank you so much. Oh, thank you for coming. I'm so excited and happy and honored that we could share a meal together because to me, that's the ultimate hospitality and the ultimate show of love and affection is you sit and break bread with me. And so thank you for doing that. Thank you right back. And that's our show for today. My thanks again to Barca Cardoz for joining us and for having me to her home and for cooking me lunch. Sometimes this job, I got to say, sometimes it's pretty great. If you haven't already, again, I'd love it if you pre-ordered my book, The Dish. Andrew Talks to Chefs is produced by Table 12 Productions. The show is written, booked, edited, mixed, and hosted by me, Andrew Friedman. If you'd like to support us, we ask that you do that by telling a friend about the pod, posting about it on social media, or rating or especially reviewing us at Apple Podcasts. Our thanks, as always, to After School Special for our music. Please check out their album, Double Barrel, Single Entendre on iTunes. Please follow us on Instagram, at Chef Podcast is the handle there, and my personal handle on Instagram is at Tokeland Andrew, T-O-Q-U-E-L-A-N-D. Andrew, that's where you can follow my writing and dining adventures and also learn a bit about my personal life if that's something that's of interest to you. I can't believe it would be, but if it is, there you go. Thank you, everybody, for listening, and we will be back soon with another episode of Andrew Talks to Chefs. <laughs>